and welcome to the business community with me, Heather Noble. And me, Tracy Jones. And this week we're going to have a quick discussion on the subject of neurodiversity. I'm not quite sure why the subject popped up, but it's rather coincidental. Yeah, a week before we we chose this topic, I'd also listened to a podcast. Maybe that's why it all happened. Maybe it was just in the back of my mind. It's the stars aligning, yeah. this is what happens. So I listened to a podcast by CIPD, Podcast 152, if you're interested. And it's talking about neurodiversity being a vital aspect of workplace inclusion. That sounds very worthy. Mm. But um, the whole gist of it was they had some um, experts um, from the British Dyslexia Association, CIPD's Diversity and Inclusion Advisor and um, an employer talking about um, how our brains work differently and how you can actually bring what that um, the value that that brings into the workplace and things to the, to consider. It was quite a long podcast, and I, I I'm not going to go into the full detail of it, but it just really got me thinking about a subject that we've touched on before, haven't we? But really, um, just thinking about what it would mean from a recruitment point of view and from workplace uh, adaptations, and how do you just go about making this work in a workplace? Where did you start with this investigation, Heather? So, as is often the case, I wanted to go and find out, you know, a definition of neurodiversity. I think we all know what diversity is, you know, yeah. diversity, inclusion, you know, that's that's very much the thing. Um, so, essentially, um, neurodiversity is, is about... Um, the different ways that the brain can work and interpret information, as you've said. And it highlights that um, that people think about things differently, which is kind of an, an, a no-brainer. A no-brainer. I was just going to yeah. say that yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Talking of yeah. the brain, it seems obvious, I think. It seems well, obvious, it? Yeah. yes. But, um, but when we look at neurodiversity, particularly in the workplace, but just in, in society in general, it's about recognizing those differences and celebrating those differences particularly in those people who may have um autism or adhd or dyslexia so it, it, and it's actually a pr- protected characteristic because yeah. if you have a if you have one of those conditions um then that's perceived at, it, it comes under the d- disability element of um a protected characteristic. So I thought that was the starting point. You know, what are we actually talking about? We know what diversity is, but what is this neurodiversity? And it's about the way that the brain works. Yeah. Uh, and not just, it's it's anything outside of what we would ordinarily expect, how we would ordinarily expect the brain to behave. Yeah, and I think... That we said it's obvious that everybody thinks differently, but from the research that I did and the podcast I listened to, and a particularly good article in Harvard Business Review um, that's worth a read, um, it's called Neurodiversity as a Competitive Advantage, it really got me thinking to the fact that it's not just the way that people think, actually what makes it difficult for the people who are more neurodiverse 
in their behaviours, mm. I think. Because, um, yes, you can say, oh, it's okay that everybody thinks differently, but a lot of people with the conditions that you described might actually be socially awkward or might, might actually not make eye contact, mm. might um, struggle under normal interview um, conditions, mm. in which case... It means that potentially, even without trying to, you'd be excluding them from your recruitment process because they, well, what the conclusion I came to is that we do sort of expect people to fit in a box. No, no matter yeah. how diverse we think we are, we all have our own boxes that we would tend to fit people in. So if somebody acted a little bit awkwardly in an interview, how many interviewers are fully prepared for somebody who finds it really difficult to make eye contact? Mm. Mm. and yeah. it's all of those considerations I really hadn't thought about well and then we get into unconscious bias don't we so we assume that you know that individual is um not as intelligent as we, you know they might actually be um not as not um not able to to think in the same way that we want them to think uh, or conform or conform yeah, yeah absolutely and it, yes it is about those boxes i found an article on the national archives it's an, an, an eight, um it's from acas um, and it talks about neurodiversity in the workplace and what it is um and and they say that um around one in seven people which is more than 15 percent of people in the uk are neurodivergent meaning that the brain functions learning and process they learn and process information differently um, and that could be uh, attention deficit disorders autism dyslexia and dyspraxia i think a lot of us are familiar with dyslexia as a term but when we then start getting into um, dyspraxia and autism and asperger's you know we really need to educate ourselves a bit more about what those what those conditions mean yeah. and, and how they display and themselves. And I think it, it takes more than just having the mindset that oh, I'm not going to exclude anybody. From from where I was looking at it, you actually have to make positive changes and actually positively change the way you think and, and some of your own processes yeah. in order to accommodate this because just having the intent not to judge or, or not to exclude people is probably not going to work. It, I was looking at some examples here, workplace accommodations. This is in the HBR article, such as allowing people to wear headphones. So yeah. they're, they're potentially not being rude. What they're yeah. doing is avoiding auditory overstimulation. Yeah. Um, there, there might be other challenges that um, that they struggle with. There was a really good example. This was um, a composite. So they used an example of this person called John. And John is a composite of lots of people, so they're not, not yeah. pointing at one particular person. But you might recognise John. So John is a wizard, to, wizard at data analytics, mm -hmm. combination of maths ability, software development, two master's degrees on the CV, obvious guy for a tech job, um, but he's been unemployed for several years um, because he, he can't get through the hiring process. Mm -hmm. um, and you'd, you'd understand why. If you watched him, it says in the article, he wears headphones all the time. When people talk to him, he doesn't look at them. He leans over every 10 minutes to tighten his shoelaces and he, because he can't concentrate when his shoelaces are loose, but he can't when they're tight. Um, sorry, when his laces are tight, he's the department's most productive employee. He's hardworking, never wants to take a break, but 
He was assigned a workplace buddy, but doesn't like working with them. Yeah. And they, they said in this article, it's quite representative of people that are in uh, some of the programmes that companies are pioneering, but they're actively seeking out neurodiverse talent and changing their recruitment, hiring, and even performance management processes to accommodate that. So that's quite a big mindset and policy and procedure change, I think. Yeah, and so it's a cultural thing. Um, it's um, it's about reducing stigma, um, but it's also, without wishing to sound too flowery about it, it's about celebrating those skills, exactly as have been highlighted there. Um, and again, some of the, the positive attributes are creativity and innovation, the ability for lateral thinking, strategic analysis, bringing a different perspective, just looking at things differently, thinking about things differently. Um, development of highly specialised skills, that's, you know, um, that attention to detail. And the w- one that I think we perhaps forget about is consistency in tasks once mastered. Yeah. So it might take a little bit longer because of the way that you, you're able to engage with and they're able to engage with you, but one, you will get totally consistent spot on so if you need something to be the same every time then you know there are people who, who Perfect, would be much better at that than I would ever be yeah, I, you definitely. know I am not that person there was a really good um, example uh, analogy used here um, in the HBR article which said that um, managers actually have to do the hard work here of fitting irregular puzzle pieces together mm-hmm. I thought that was really mm-hmm. good and and not treating people as containers of fungible human resources but fungible you, fungible it's a good word isn't it but as a unique individual talent. And that's I mean, it's so important in a time where businesses are needing to be innovative. They're, they're needing innovation. And innovation comes from variety. It comes from different ways of thinking. It, it comes from other diversity as well. It comes from different genders and different backgrounds. But um, the other um, example I like from this article, it says that innovation has to include people and ideas from the edges. Yeah, brilliant. From the edge, yes. I like that. Yeah. And and where it says the tension comes is because a company, especially as it's growing, expects processes to be able to scale neatly. Yes. And then for people to fit into those boxes. Yeah, yeah. rather than taking the time to make adjustments, as you mentioned earlier. Yeah. To but make... for the companies that are prepared to fit together these irregular puzzle people pieces and and then take people from the edges then the possibilities for innovation are brilliant mm-hmm. yeah I, I mean i'm hoping you know you use the example of, of headphones you know we do increasingly now in schools we'll see young people with headphones on because where we you know kids often now will have if they have dyspraxia or ADHD or whatever it might be they might have, they might have one-on-one teaching support yeah um way better than when we were at school yeah when you were just, just the naughty to, kids yeah. well you well yeah you were the naughty kids or you were put in a remedial class because your ability to move with the mass wasn't yeah wasn't working but uh, that only works in the the organizations where you need like robots yeah, absolutely. And, and we've got robots to do that yeah, instead. We absolutely. need. We've talked about the future of work, and what we need is for people to do the things that robots can't do. 
which is innovate yeah. and think differently and do the human things. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm hoping, maybe I'm naive, but I'm hoping that that, seeing that in the work, in the, in schools will allow it to transfer into the workplace more yeah. naturally because if kids at school are used to seeing John wear headphones so that he you know, can focus and concentrate well then in the workplace that will be something Eventually. yes yeah. we understand that we understand what's going on there making adjustments for um you know people with dyslexia you know or, or dyspraxia you know what dyspraxic people you know they were just clumsy you know well no actually there's something going on there and so how can we make their life easier to enable them to contribute the best to the world yeah fairly and I think this is about fairness um, and and equality um, but not based on you know the usual female male equality or you know all of of the all of the more bleeding obvious well stuff. they're getting a bit more mainstream now i mean i still think it's difficult in a lot of workplaces diversity isn't a given is no, it no 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 uh, and i think neurodiversity is some way behind but it is good to see that there are some companies now that are making real headway towards um you know breaking through those challenges um in the cipd podcast one of the employers was um an it recruitment agency that only recruited neurodiverse people Mm. and that was their usp yeah i think the thing there is that of course when we talk about these labels these sort of diagnoses for want of a better word although i'm not comfortable with that word because it suggests that there's something Something wrong wrong with with them and that i don't think that's fair but it's a bit like um if you're if you're only mildly dyslexic you know you might not have been identified or not even want to go down that route exactly exactly or you you know or you haven't been formally identified as having adhd but you display those yeah because it's a sliding scale exactly all everything's a sliding scale isn't it the whole of life yeah so we're all we're, we're we all have potential for some of these elements but it's just saying look this this actually isn't a thing. I mean, I remember a time when, um, you know, the dis- before the um, disability discrimination discrimination act. act came in, you know, or just as it came in, there was a point where people were going, "Oh crikey, all right, we need to we need to employ some people to get our know, figures up to get yeah. our figures up because you know we've got this many staff and none of them have a disability of any kind or ethnicity or the gender thing we know about that um so what i wouldn't want is for this to be a whole um box ticking box ticking exercise this is about include inclusivity i think i think a note to finish this section on is is from the hbr article um, and it's talking about the fact that the work for managers will be harder but it's worth it because um it says that innovation is most likely to come from parts of us that we don't all share. Mm. And I think that applies to all diversity, yeah. the parts of us we don't share. <laughs> yes, that's brilliant. Because, again, if you, in a decision-making process, if everybody thinks in the same way, are you going to get the best decision? Not necessarily, because there's nobody to go, well, hang on a minute, what about this? 
Yeah, I like that. And that was where? In the um, Harvard Business Review article. It's called uh, Neurodiversity as a Competitive Advantage. Why you should embrace it in your workforce. Very good. So where's the search? It's uh, dated 2017 and I'm sure there's more up-to-date stuff, but there were some really, really interesting points in there. And then um, our review this week. Um, you've got the book. I've got the audio, oh, the audio book. book. And I uh, I realised that I'd bitten off more than I can chew, so decided not to buy the book. Um, but the book is actually Becoming by Michelle Obama. Uh, Heather, maybe start with your little story on this one first, and then we'll we'll fill in the gaps. <laughs> well, I'm to read the book. There was no way I was going to be able to read the book in time. I had got it on Audible, and so I started listening to it. Uh, now, I'm not great at listening to the spoken word and staying awake in the best of times. I can't <laughs> listen to a play on the radio. Um, but the book, the, the audible version that I've got is read by Michelle Obama. She's got a lovely voice. And her voice oh, is yeah. beautiful. And she reads it quite slowly and quite deliberately, which is lovely. If and you want to go to sleep. If you want to go to sleep, yeah. So she's painting these beautiful pictures um, and I was driving up to North Wales the other day and I thought, right, I'll listen to a chapter. And I literally had to stop because I was falling asleep. It was quite early, but I was, I was kind of falling asleep. You know, I was thinking, oh, hang on a minute. Open the window. No, that's not cutting it right. I need to put the radio <laughs> on. Put some heavy metal music yeah. on. Wake yeah. me up. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But it, but it is, it, hearing it read... It is it is beautifully crafted. And it comes all the way from her childhood, her early yes. childhood. And how far have you got in her life story? Um, so so at the moment, she hasn't even met um, Barack Obama yet. Okay. Uh, so it's about she 19 She met him hours. when she was working as a lawyer, didn't she? Yes, so we haven't even gone. going to get through college. No, uh, yeah. she, um, we've learned about her. Princeton and Harvard. Have you got there no, yet? No. no. Okay. No, she's still at home. Uh, her father's got MS. She's learned how to play the piano. She talked about her grandparents. She's really setting her brother, setting the scene about her family. Um, and I think I'm four chapters in. Okay. But it's, it's 19 hours. Um, I don't know how I'm going to... I want to do it, but I, it's no good. I try, I've try. i tried listening at night and I just fall asleep. You fall asleep. Okay. So I offered you an alternative route out of that Uh hell loop that mm. you were in mm. wanting to listen but instantly yeah really asleep. i really want yeah. to listen yeah um, and i discovered a um a documentary um it was more almost like a sales pitch yeah an hour and a half sales pitch on netflix called becoming and it followed her on her book tour promoting the book becoming yeah and i've got to say i really really enjoyed it potentially could have been a bit shorter mm. I, I felt like i'd got a lot out of it but um an hour and a half was maybe 30 minutes too long yeah um but i felt so emotional just watching her and the way she engaged with people the the thing where i, I probably really really struck me and i felt quite emotional was when she was doing a book signing and she she sat behind that desk and you, you see authors do book signings all the time and you think they really don't want to be there, do they? You know, they've got minders all around yeah. them and they've signed it and off you go. So she was shaking people's hands. She was listening to their stories. She was giving them pep talks. She gave them so much of herself yeah. in that little interaction. And 
her fans that were coming for those books to be signed wasn't about the signature on the book. It was about interacting with her mm. and getting that connection. You could see how I feel quite emotional thinking mm. about it. The connect that personal connection with her, the fact that she looked them in the eye. Yeah. And she even said, I think, in the documentary, somebody had told her, Don't look anywhere else when yeah. you're doing this. Be present. Just look at that person. Yeah. And yeah. it yeah, it that came through the screen to me. It's like that was such an amazing thing. And I get the sense that she wouldn't have left that seat until that whole queue was gone. No. no. And and people, you know, a lot of females you know, I would say predominantly females, a lot of them young women, a lot of them um, people of colour. Um, and the the idea that, um, I mean, one one of them was hyperventilating yeah, you know, and, and hadn't expected that to happen. And they didn't like shuffle her along or get her out of the way. They kept her there. Michelle Obama actually held it in her to, hand. Yeah, yeah kept hold said, of right, her hand. Yeah, right, okay. Because at first I thought, oh, God, this woman's holding on to her hand a bit too long, you know, the, the minds are going to come in. And, and actually, if you look, it was Michelle she Obama was not, yeah. holding her yes, hand, yeah. yeah, making sure she was grounded. Yeah. And then there were quite a few sort of um, focus group kind of conversations with young young yeah. people yes is her so she wasn't just thing. doing the book tour was she she was going around she was she said she wanted to understand more about these people and yeah and, and you could see again the interaction she was having with them it was like she she was really invested mm. in in coaching them mm. felt, felt yes. very coaching yes. didn't it? yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, there was one bit um towards the end where she she'd gone to a church um, a, a community church and there were quite a few older people there yeah. and um, she uh, she was talking to them and you know and, and they were and they uh, I think most of them were black um, and there was one lady there in particular and she said my parents um, could never have she was very elderly, could never have imagined oh, yeah. that there would be a first lady of the United States who was black, yeah. who, you know, is descended from slaves. Um, and and they said something, and they said, you will always be the first lady. Because from their community point of view... She was the first. She was the first, first yeah. one. And it was, it was beautiful. It was just lovely. I found it really difficult um, to watch the bits where they analysed um, her being attacked by the media. And, and you, you could really see how she is now, incredibly relaxed and comfortable in her own body. And they showed the uh, the media clips where, where actually she sort of stumbled into it and didn't realise this was going to happen, I think. She, she used to... She's an intelligent woman. She yeah. was Barack Obama's mentor yeah. in the law firm yeah. you know she, she knows her stuff and she's highly driven she's not actually that into politics wasn't at all interested in no, politics no. only doing it to support her husband and yet the, the they all went out after didn't they? The, the all the um the republicans attacking her and and you could see in in the footage of her she just she said herself she just shrank away yeah. Yeah. And, and that that's a, was an awful thing to see, and I, I'd be interested to see how she describes that in the book. In the preface of the book, um, she talks about um, people who um, people. She said, you know, she was thrown into the into the you know when Barack won, she was thrown into this position, 
Um, and, you know, she said, did I ever imagine that people would um, question whether or not I was a man um, or talk about the size of my bum or, you know, things that are just based on absolutely nothing. And she said, if I chose to focus on those things, it would have, you know, it could have destroyed me. Yeah. And so she did have to take a conscious decision to go, you don't even know, in her mind, you yeah. don't know anything about me. Uh, so I'm going to just not focus on that. That's but so hard to do. How can people be so it? cruel? Yeah. You know? and, and I think what they there's a little bit of it that the world missed out on during that period because she said um, when she was doing these speeches supporting her husband's uh, presidential campaign, they, these were like spur of the moment, passionate. They were based on the things that she believed in and she was there, you know, sort of on the campaign trail with him. And she said what she had to do was to rein it all in. She did nothing unscripted after that. Mm. And and that's where you see the pictures of her. And she looked a shadow of yeah. her former self. You know, the passion that everything that she thought she was doing that was good was just taken away. Even the clothes she started wearing yeah, were just very different. Yeah. Yeah. And they I mean they were they were reporting that she hated America. Yeah. Uh because in part of her quest to sort of talk about the fact that, you know, Afro-Caribbean woman, you know, yeah. potentially living, campaigning on behalf of the first black president of the United States um, and saying, you know, this is how it should be kind of thing. They're, they're basically saying, well, you must hate America yeah. then. Because you're saying you this is wrong. It. Yeah, yeah you're, and it was like, It's so no, twisted and awful. It's not, yeah. it's, um, but I, I really enjoyed watching the documentary and it would mean that I'd perhaps read the book not listen to the audible yeah, version. Although of it, it is beautiful, her voice is beautiful. Yeah, I've heard a voice on the documentary now. Yeah, yeah. One one thing I don't know if this struck you in the same way when she was on her book tour at one of the venues, her husband turned up, and there's a little bit of me went, "No, this is her show. Yeah, why have you turned up here? Yes. it's not about you. Yeah, yeah. Did yeah. you get the same? Yes, feeling? absolutely. Because they were showing footage of him, and I was, and he was walking sort of obviously back of a sort of theatre or whatever. Yeah. And I was thinking, I hope he's not going there. And he did turn up with a bunch of flowers. And, um, and, and I, yeah, I felt that. And she even said, you know, because she didn't know, um, clearly didn't know, because she didn't actually look as chuffed as she no. might have done. <laughs> she um, looked a bit like I felt, yeah, actually. Yeah, yeah. And she was oh. kind of looking at him as if to say, my what are you doing here? Because but fair dues, actually, as they were leaving, you, you got a measure of the man as well, because every single person... They walked past on their way out. He thanked. He said thank you. No matter who they were, he said thank you all the way to the car, didn't they? Yes. So you get a real sense of the charisma that guy's got. Yeah. And and the the part of the book that I've listened to so far, you seeing that woman in that documentary and how she's behaving and how she's performing, it relates very clearly to how she was brought up and the, the home that she was brought up in. And um, that was really nice to see in the documentary because we went back there, didn't we? Yes, she went back yeah. to the, they were yeah. living on the, um, the first floor of a house. They were all, and she tells a story of her brother, she and her brother shared a room. And then one day her her granddad came over and put up a partition, which turned their sm- already small room into two, <laughs> two rooms, tiny rooms. But she loved her little room. But um, but she, um, in, in the documentary, um a, a, a young woman asked her, you know, how, given, you know, the colour of your skin, the colour of our skin, um, how did you 
deal with be you know being treated as though you were invisible and she said quite easy she said my parents taught me that, that, that they made me feel that I was always visible yeah and and that's really the making of the the woman um and she then talks about how she treats her daughters in in the same way yeah I, I imagine that the section on um on the daughters Amalia and Sasha is um, quite fascinating because I don't know how I can't even begin to imagine how you bring up balanced well-adjusted children in the White House and she she mentioned in the documentary and no doubt she goes into more detail in the book about how she um, refused to let the White House staff make the beds for the kids because yeah. she wasn't going to have kids that grew up not knowing that, how to yeah. make beds yeah. and she tried to keep it as normal as possible for them. And, and she, and yeah I like that because she also used an example of she, they turn up at the White House and all of the staff uh, all um, the butlers are in tuxedos, yeah, tuxedos. You know, all the time yeah. and um and she's she said no this is not normal and, and they were they were all um most of them were black as well so she said yeah i didn't want them to see what could have been their uncle yeah dressed in a tuxedo serving us yes there. yeah and um but she also then went on to say that they said so they changed the uniform because she said my daughters have friends coming around this is not it's not normal you know, young kids come in playing and there are butlers and tuxedos. So, I mean, she didn't say what they changed it to. I hope it was like chinos and a polo shirt yeah. or something. But because um, she, she said, you know, I'm trying, this is just a part of their life. Do you think when the Trumps came back in that they reintroduced oh, the, I reckon the tuxedo yeah. and everything? I reckon the they full probably did. Glitz and glamour. Yeah. Did you hear the bit she talked about? Her daughter wanted a sleepover for the yeah. last night. The very last night. I mean, that's some parenting for yeah. you, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Before they had to leave the White yeah. House. And she said she got them up in the morning, and she was like, "Look, you got to get up. We got to. You got to get up because the Trumps are coming. <laughs> <laughs> That'll get you moving, won't it? So um, I just want to point you towards. Um, a reader's guide um this is brilliant and i think they've got them for um a lot of books on the penguin random house website so if you do a search for becoming by michelle obama and look for penguin random house there's an excellent reader's guide and it just goes through questions to make you think or questions about the book to maybe have a discussion with Mm -hmm. a, a book club or something like that so the very first question is mrs obama begins her book with a story about making cheese on toast on a quiet night at home a few months after leaving the White House. Why do you think she chose this story to begin her memoir? And I thought, actually, these are really... It's good because it adds another layer to your reading. So you could just read that and go, she had cheese on toast, yeah. Mm. Then actually when you delve into it and you start to think, okay, why did she choose that particular... Mm. Did, did you think anything of it when you read it? Well, yeah, well, so when she was saying about it, yeah, I did, absolutely, because she expands on that and says... She, she basically, she said, I came downstairs, um, I was home alone, uh, and I put, I opened the fridge got a piece of bread stuck it in the toaster she said and I put it in the toaster and there was nobody trying it oh well I'll do that I'll take you know she said and so I made the piece of toast she said I made another piece of toast and then she said and then I made a grilled cheese sandwich and and there was nobody and she sat outside um and, and ate this this toasty because there hadn't been somebody hadn't taken over so it yeah it it was lovely because it's like yeah 
it was that normality. She was highlighting that normality of just being able to do what you want. Um, the kids were away. Barack was away. She said she went upstairs, went to bed. And, you know... I'm going to say toast is a really good analogy for me because when when I used to uh, travel a lot with work and it was like what you think is ideal hotel after hotel after hotel and and, and until you do it you think Mm. well that's a perfect life but you end up at some point craving just a piece of toast something really simple and I really get that yeah it's like it is the simple act of being able to sit in your pajamas and eat toast yeah because she or she also talked about you know we had chefs preparing the greatest food you know I mean they were the whole family you know were being cooked for all the time and there was never this ability to you know, I wanted you know, can I do that you know that sort of thing no so no so um so the last question in in the main list of questions in, on Random House website is why do you think Michelle Obama chose to name her memoir Becoming and what does the idea of becoming mean to you And I'd read this question before I watched the documentary and I tried to form a sense of what my answer to this would be while I was watching it. But what what are your thoughts on that? Uh, Well, I interpret it as becoming the person that she is now and and that it wasn't the person she is now is not the person she was eight years ago or ten, whatever it is now, um, and, and is not the person that went to law school and is not the person that learn to play the piano you know we we grow and develop and your um your identity is not set so we're always becoming yeah you're not defined by this is how i interpreted it that your background does not define who you are or um or where you'll get to because you know she's 60 years of age now you know she looks great she she? looks amazing she looks amazing (laughs) But um, but she still isn't who she is. Yeah. Yeah. yeah who, who she's going to you be. You stole my thunder there because that was exactly my take on it. It was it was one word to sum up the sense that this is a journey. Yeah. And she's made some very conscious decisions. Some of the decisions she's had to make have been forced upon her. Mm. But she has styled her life, made these decisions and she's growing all the way through it. And I get the sense that she's still not there, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you never get to the end of that journey until you literally get to the end of the yes. journey. Yeah. Was it, did, um, I can't remember if it was um, on the podcast last week where we were talking about, you know, people who ask children what they want to be when they grow up. And, um, oh no, I think it was her, I think it was, I think she says this in the preface. Asking a child what they want to be when they grow up is the least helpful question you can ask because it's suggesting that when you grow up, that is who you are. Yeah. Um, and in actual fact, that's just the start of Absolutely. your, your adult God. journey. So. <laughs> I wish somebody had told me that. But my, my parents were never pushy for me to be something, but it is an incredibly stupid question, yeah. isn't it? Because I, I still don't know what I want to be when I grow no. up. no. <laughs> I don't want to grow up. <laughs> That's the starting point. So I think we can highly recommend, um, if you're not sure, I suggest you watch the documentary yep. on Netflix. Um, if you're still not sure, go and read some of the questions on the Random House website, Penguin Random House website, because you'll get a sense of what sort of stories she tells. Yeah, yeah. 
And and then if you if you're not prone to falling asleep listening to it, you can listen to Try it on Audible. Audible. Yes. <laughs> but yes, it's becoming by Michelle Obama. And then the profile, Heather. So this um, lady, I didn't know her surname until we actually decided to talk about her last week. Did you? No, I thought her surname was the name that she traded under, which was Bridgewater, Emma Bridgewater. Yeah, the, um... that was news to me. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I didn't realise she's actually called Emma Rice because Emma Bridgewater married Matthew Rice. Yes. Seems fairly obvious, doesn't it, actually, now? But there we go. Yeah, have they not recently split up? I they split, um, but I, I'm not sure if they're not back together. I was trying to piece it together oh, on a okay. number of articles. Okay. So one article, it talks about the fact that they'd split, and then in another article, it's talking about their... Um, so in April last year, talking about their Oxfordshire farmhouse, which she shares with her husband, Matthew Rice. So I wasn't oh. quite sure of the timeline. Right, okay. Mind you, it is a very big house. Perhaps they just live in separate wings. Uh, maybe he's in the stables. I don't know. Or is that just where I would put yeah. <laughs> So, yeah, we're talking about Emma Rice, near Bridgewater. And she founded, um, with her husband, the company Emma Bridgewater, way back in 1984. I didn't realise it went back as far as 1984. And I have to admit that, obviously, the vested interest here is that I'm... Stoke-on-Trent, born and bred, and uh, I like pottery, and we'll turn the pottery over and have a look at where it's made, even before I've finished what's on the plate or in the cup. (laughs) (laughs) Can cause a mess sometimes. Once a Stokey, always a Stokey, I suppose. Always, yes. Um, And... And, and perhaps why it got under my radar is it hasn't always had the factory in Stoke. So it started mm. off as a, desi- a pottery design and they were selling their designs. And then they decided, well, if we're designing them, why not make them as well? And they bought um, a rundown factory in, um, it was probably the arse end of Stoke. I would say it was a very rundown street and, and they've actually transformed it. They've taken over one of the roads and really transformed this area. And it brought a bit of glitz and glamour to Stoke with some of the stuff that they've been doing as well. Yeah, I mean, I think most of us will have seen, you know, the spotty cups or the um, the things, you know, like Mr and Mrs. Or, you know, they're quite sort of, ch- it's quite chunky yeah. pottery, isn't it? It's not, not ch- fine it's not china. fine china, no. no, no, not at all. Um, and, yeah, and and she... I saw the star. I stopped listening. I stopped watching actually because I was finding it a bit. I was finding it difficult to watch because she's not the greatest presenter ever. Okay. But then I did see a TED interview that she did, which worked much better. Okay, so with with the interview, yeah, she, yeah. the interaction. Um, but she sort of had this vision. She wanted to buy a gift for her mother, who. Um, uh, she wanted to buy a gift for her mother, and she and she wanted to buy two teacups to suggest. I think her mother had an accident, and so she might have had um, limited mobility. I'm not quite sure. Um, and she couldn't find anything that she liked, and so she just got this vision in her mind of what it was that she liked, and so then decided to plug that gap in the market. Um, and then, as you say, you know, then formed relationships with people in the potteries, uh, and and then and then took it to the next logical conclusion. Uh, but she, um, this isn't what she set out to do. You know, she she had no idea that this was what she was 
going to do. It wasn't. It wasn't. She didn't set out to be an entrepreneur. No, at all. Um, and, and I think um, that the whole idea of um, you know. To, she started off with a design and then thought, well, nobody else is doing this because they weren't at the time. Nobody yeah. was doing that um, that type of trying. And she said it was inspired by her uh, the type of pottery that her mother had on her dresser. And you can this picks this stuff. You can imagine when you see it in the shops, it's often presented in that sort of way. Yeah. Her mother used to have a really eclectic mix of different types of pottery on her dresser. Um, and I, I think, yeah, it, it's interesting how you can just sort of evolve your way into a business yes. it's a massive business now. yeah yes it, it, it definitely wasn't her uh, it wasn't her plan and um, I, I saw an article uh in well um th- there's a website called high50.com where they talk about um well high performing business owners entrepreneurs I over guess. 50 over 50 yeah yeah, yeah. and um she uh, she talks about, she says her advice to anybody who's thinking of setting up a business, think recklessly and be prepared to work hard. Yeah. So she, her approach wasn't conventional in any way, shape or form. Um, and she started on the kitchen table. Um, she got funding and she basically jostled her way to success. Uh, no, it wasn't without its uh, troubles because I understand um, in her 30s the, the stress got too much for her. She said she was on the edge of a breakdown and yeah. at the same time developed rheumatoid arthritis, yeah. Yeah. Um, which, which was sort of not helped at all by the stress, maybe brought on by the stress. Um, and and their, her husband um, stepped in. She just basically, literally overnight, yeah. he was an illustrator. She just handed the reins over to him. And realised he could actually do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I just found the article. So the one article that refers to their marriage having split was in February 2018. And then the article in House and Garden okay. in April 2020 refers to um, Emma Bridgewater and her husband, Matthew Rice. Right. It okay. does. It does refer to her as Emma Bridgewater, not Emma Rice. So I don't know if there's been a, a change there. Anyway, um, it was a really interesting article because they talk a lot about Stoke in this. Um, so the house she lives in is a farmhouse in Oxfordshire, okay. but she wanted it to be in easy commuting uh, distance, um, presumably on the train uh, for Stoke. Um, and she's recently bought a flat in the area known as the Villas. Now the Villas is, is again it's in a a part of Stoke that many years ago was a bit rather run down, but in this, it clearly was a very nice area at some point because the villas are Italianti stucco buildings okay. in the middle of loads of terrace houses wow. now. These amazing villas, absolutely gorgeous. I've had the um, I had the fortunate experience of of having been into a few of these when they've been um, populated by. A family, yeah. So huge villas, but with beautiful Italian sort of wow. designs on them, and she's got a flat in that area. And so, I, in my head, I'm thinking, okay, so have have they improved the area a little bit? Because yes. you know, just just thinking, yeah. If you're worth seventeen million, then uh, yeah, they must have done something. Yes. Um, yeah. But interestingly, in the Homes and Gardens magazine, uh, they say that um, 
when she first came to Stoke, she found a blighted cityscape. And at first I took a bit of umbrage, but then I, I realised I've talked about arse end of Stoke, haven't I? And, yeah. and you know, where yeah. she's been with the, um, where, where she's now living. It's like, actually, yeah, in 1984, um, it, it was, well, all the industry closed down. So Stoke was well known for pottery, yeah. coal and steel. And what happened to industry in the 1980s? Well, and all the potters were leaving Stoke. Yeah. You know, it was... The pottery's yeah, closing it, down, yes, yeah. It wasn't going to... Anything wasn't... If they stayed trading, they would be sourcing their stuff from overseas. It wouldn't be being yeah. made in the potteries. And and what was great is that she took on this factory. So it was a converted um, Victorian factory. And a lot of the people that she now employs there had family who used to work in the pots. When I was um, a kid, every family knew people who worked in the potteries and maybe two or three generations also yeah. worked in the potteries as well. Um, but what what this article in House and Garden goes on to say is, is how um, she is bringing um, you know, something great to Stoke-on-Trent. Um, so she's got a cafe and a pottery studio, which we're yes, hoping to visit, yes, aren't yeah. we? Um, and they run an apprenticeship scheme. And she also had this hot air literary festival now she really didn't research that with stokies because the way that a stokie will say that i can guarantee is hot hair literary festival hot hair yeah okay hot hair that that's the only way i can say it i had to really concentrate hard to say hot air um and and this was um loads of big names coming to Stoke and actually just helping to to lift the city and, and raise the profile of the city and and those sort of things matter um she's also involved with um the preservation of a church that I know right, um, from like my childhood and then from my young adult years it was next door to a an, a wine bar a wine oh, bar, a wine bar. That I used to go to so a Bethesda Methodist chapel that she's involved in and preserving so she's bringing a lot of stuff to Stoke she, even though she doesn't live in Stoke she's clearly invested a lot of herself into the area and for that I I give praise I think that she I think you're absolutely right and you mentioned you know they employ about 250 staff something like that and she she talks about the cafe on site and all of you know different things um and she says that she will never sell the business because she fears that if she sold the business then the buyer might sell the factory yeah and then well there's no there's virtually no pottery made in Stoke-on-Trent anymore so the big names Wedgwood they do have a factory still in, in Staffordshire but that's only for the hand-finished gilded stuff that yeah. goes to the Queen most of it's made abroad same with Dalton and Spode and Port yeah. Merion they've still got the big presence in the cities but yeah it's not made there and I, I like the fact that she's actually I mean and I can virtually guarantee that that factory setup isn't the ideal modern factory setup. Victorian pottery factories were on different levels. You'd be having to carry your pots from that level to that level. It won't be the ideal setup. No, because the sort yeah, of time, not the stream the time and motion yeah. Um, yeah. That, uh, way of thinking. It was about really... squeezing it into a small yeah. space. Yeah. Yeah. So um, the fact that she's keeping that heritage going as well, because you know, there are, you've got the Gladstone Pottery Museum, you've got Middleport um pottery where they used to host 
um, great pottery throwdown. Oh, yes. They now moved it to Gladstone. Right. But then Ember Bridgewater. So it's really, um, they do have a visitor centre at Wedgwood, but like I say, it's a bit of a, it's not a full-on production factory there. So I think it's great. Yeah, she um, she talked about, in in this sort of TED interview that she did, she talked about the price point and she said that basically she identified if this was going to work, she needed the price of her pottery to be twice the price of anybody else's mm. so that it would be positioned. And so she's got she's got some shops in London, you know, Fulham, Marylebone, yeah. you know, stuff is stocked in John Lewis. You know, she's talking to and, and reaching out to yeah, the sort of people who would still be buying. You've got to match their expectations, yeah. haven't you? Yeah. 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 I, I remember doing some work with a, a lady who was selling the product, lived in a smart part of Cheshire, and uh, she. I, I always felt like her prices were too low for her product, not because she should have made more money from it, but because people in that particular Cheshire village where she lived would prefer to get it from London yeah. because it was of perceived better value. Yes. She yeah. had this product, it was too low in price, and so they assumed it wasn't as good as the one yeah. that they had to ship in from London. Yeah. It's a really important consideration. And that's the same with services as well, isn't it? If somebody prices them too, sells too low for a coaching session, yeah. you're going to assume that that person isn't, you know, isn't a isn't very good, good coach. Yeah. Yes. She, with um, the positioning of her products, you know, this isn't about... I need six plates, six sides plates, six cups, six saucers, six cereal bowls. This is a cup and saucer. I need a, a gift. Mug, a plat- <laughs> yes. Yeah. So it's or something for the dresser. Yeah, exactly. So it's yeah. yeah so it's that it's ornamental pottery that has a or your, usage. Your work mug. Yeah, you only need the one work exactly. mug. Exactly. Yeah, yes. Yeah. This isn't about. That's buying. good for radio. That wasn't. I held my hand you like did, I was holding a big mug. Like you mug. were holding yeah. a big yeah. mug, and you repeated it. And yes. You did it. Too. Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Perfect for radio. That. <laughs> yeah. So that's Emma Bridgewater, and I think the reason that we were talking about her is because we had spotted um, that you could go and do a, a pottery. Spotted. Spot- oh, very good. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, that we'd spotted that you could go and do um, some pottery painting yeah. there. But is- our diaries are so full, we've had to push it to September. Yeah. Watch <sighs> this <Heather>. space. <laughs> we'll let you know how, uh, how wonderful our pottery painting skills are. <laughs> That's all we've got time for this week on the business community. If you've enjoyed listening to this week's podcast, you can find out about all the things that we've talked about over the years at our website, which is thebusiness.community. We do hope you'll join us again next week for more news, views and reviews from the world of business. Mm -hmm.